Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. I've got the pleasure of being seated with Sriram Natarajan. Sriram is an associate professor of computer science at the University of Texas at Dallas. Sriram, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Hey, great to be here. Why don't we get started by having you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got interested in machine learning and artificial intelligence. So my interests are in machine learning, artificial intelligence, uh, primarily in this field called statistical relational artificial intelligence, about which we are giving a tutorial tomorrow, um, which is why I'm here at NEPS. Um, and the application and adaptation of these algorithms to many real problems, uh, focusing mainly on healthcare type problems, but also on natural language, understanding uh, finance types of problems, but mainly focusing on healthcare problems. How did I get interested? I think it started from my grad school. Uh, when I came here for master's at Oregon State, my interest was primarily uh, just computer science in the broad area of computer science. Okay. But I took uh, artificial intelligence courses uh, under uh, Professor Prasad Tadipali, who went on to uh, later become my uh, PhD advisor. Okay. Uh, and I know I just like the style of teaching. I like the fact that um, the artificial intelligence and machine learning techniques uh, combined two of my favorite topics, math and statistics with computer science. Okay. So the uh, combination of math and computer science uh, kind of uh, lured me into AI. Nice. So my thesis was primarily in artificial intelligence and machine learning. Okay. Uh, didn't have too much healthcare problems. When I did a postdoc at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, uh, Professor David Page and Professor Jude Chavlik introduced me to the possibility of using machine learning uh, and artificial intelligence to solve healthcare problems. We are looking at electronic health data, okay. electronic health record data from uh, Marshfield, Wisconsin. That got me interested into uh, kind of like personalized medicine. Now it's called precision health. Right. Uh, so these, so I got interested in uh, adapting our algorithms for, for these problems. So I think that's how my journey has happened so far. Okay. Okay, great. Uh, and so the you mentioned that you're doing a tutorial tomorrow, right? Yes. Uh, and it's on statistical artificial statistical, statistical relational artificial intelligence, right. or STAR AI, yes. which is a great acronym. <laughs> um, Thanks. What is STAR AI? So STAR AI is the combination of probabilistic or uh, uh, classical statistical machine learning with more logical or relational artificial intelligence. Um, the idea being that uh, so uh, this traditional artificial intelligence techniques uh, and uh, machine learning techniques uh, make a lot of assumptions on the data. They need a lot of pre-processing. They need a lot of engineering. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas uh, what uh, the star AI fields, uh, star AI methods try and do is kind of uh, uh, look at the data in a kind of a more holistic manner. Uh, look at the data in the natural form, in the relational form. So okay. a classic example is most of these machine learning algorithms do what is called as an IID assumption. Indi what? IID, okay. independent and identically distributed, right. which means each of us is described by the same features or same set of attributes. Right. And each of us is drawn independent of each other. And then you learn a classifier, you learn a predictor on top of us. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you look at real data, it's not true. 
The probability mm. of you having diabetes or me having diabetes depends on your parents and in my case, my parents okay. and my parents' parents and so on. So the family history matters. Our, so I can see that's particularly not true in the case of diabetes or uh, disease. Uh, are there other examples outside of the healthcare realm where that, uh, that assumption oh, falls down? Oh, even social behavior, right? How mm-hmm. some, like, even some small thing like the probability of somebody smoking mm-hmm. depends on the, the, the fact that their social network uh, friend uh, smokes or not. Okay. The, how popular a particular, co- a particular person is, let's say in a scientific field, depends on who his or her co-authors, his collaborators are. Okay. So how the popularity levels of the collaborators. So if you take classical machine learning methods, they kind of project these multi-relational data into a single fixed flat form and they operate on that. Statistical relational learning methods, on the other hand, allow the data to be in its natural form. And we we try to learn using the power of first-order logic and relational logic. Mm-hmm. So think of learning in a, in a relational database using statistical methods. Okay. So that's why it's called statistical relational artificial intelligence, because uh, it takes the classical machine learning methods, but kind of upgrade them to learn on relational data, allowing data to be in the natural form. So you take any data, electronic health records are classic mm-hmm. examples, but you look at social networks or you, you look at author citations, you look at movie databases, everything, right. most real data. Now Google stores, everybody stores the data in a relational database. But somehow when we are learning it, they are transformed into a different format. Mm-hmm. And they are aggregated, they are somehow shortened, and uh, they are all compressed into one form, and then the algorithms run on those com- compressed form. In our case, what we are saying is, well, let the data be in its pure form, which is relational. Somehow let the models be uh, learned at a relational level, which is why we, we sometimes call these models as lifted models. Because okay. they are they are lifted from a, a flat representation to a much more uh, a richer representation. Hmm. Now, when when you first started going through this, the first thought that jumped out in my mind was relational database. But then, as you described it, from the context of you know different distributions and kind of um, uh, moving beyond the independent, identically distributed assumption, I thought, oh, he's not talking about relational da- database stuff. But then you come back full circle to relational database. Can you elaborate on the relationship between statistical relational AI and relational databases? So relational databases are representations. So relational mm-hmm. databases are how the data is actually stored on, on whatever you're storing them on. Mm-hmm. The statistical relational AI says, I'll take the structure of the relational database mm-hmm. and learn a model upon the structure. So what happens is, uh, uh, in, so let's just take a a simple example. In, a, in an IID framework, in the classical machine learning framework, each of us, you and I, your father, my father, we mm-hmm. all become individual examples for a classifier. Right. Okay. In, in these relational uh, uh, models, however, uh, your family becomes one mega example. My family becomes one mega example. Mm. We may be connected, I don't know, by, uh, you know, when we go like 20 levels up. Mm-hmm. But but at the for whatever data we have, we could be different sets of mega examples, mm-hmm. and and we uh, we are so what these statistical relational learning does is learn at these mega example levels than at individual example levels. So okay. how are they related to databases? 
if you look at a database and I start, uh, let's say, with you, or let's say we start from Sriram, that's easier to explain in a uh, in an academic context. Then you go to my advisor, maybe mm-hmm. my advisor's collaborators, my collaborators. You mm-hmm. can form a small network of people around me and basically use that information to predict something about me, whether I'll be successful, whether I'll, I'm going to have a paper next year or whether I'm going to have a grant <laughs> next year. You may be okay. able to predict that by looking at whom I'm working with, what topics I'm working on, how popular it is and so on and so forth. When it comes to relational data, you're basically looking at all the relations that are connected to me mm-hmm. and figuring out how you can make some predictions about me. Mm-hmm. This is true not just in, in citations. It's true in many of these uh, 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 health uh, care problems. It's true in natural language problems. It's true in any, any uh, real problem that you look at. You have objects. Mm-hmm. People are objects and they are related. And you have objects everywhere, right? People are objects. Things are objects. And... Emails are objects mm-hmm. and uh, projects are objects. And then we are all related to emails and projects and papers right. and, and so on and so forth. And then you start talking about relations. How are these relations? Maybe two people work on a project, right? Uh, so there's uh, two people work for another person. And that person reports to an organization. And the organization is managed by somebody. So there's always these rich relations okay. that you can tease out from a database. So it's very related to a database. And you okay. can think of what we do as learning on top of a database. Mm. Um, so um, I'm envisioning then, um, well, I guess there's two directions that I want to go with this. One is uh, the extent to which what you're specifically talking about is from an implementation, you know, related to learning on databases, meaning you know, taking advantage of, you know, schemas and primary keys and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of one possibility. Um, but then I, I'm also hearing something that sounds to me like, uh, whereas we, you know, might have in traditional machine learning a, a set of independent examples uh, in statistical relational AI, you've got you know, this set of examples and kind of overlaid by some connectivity graph. Mm-hmm. Um, and it sounds like what you're, you know, trying to, what you're doing in a sense is maybe, you know, finding different ways to kind of featureize that graph and use it in the, the training process. Yeah, that's actually one uh, one's, uh, reasonably simple way of understanding what we are doing. Reasonably but, simple is a great place to start. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Uh, the reason I'm saying reasonably simple is because we really do not construct too many features. Okay. We, let, we let the features be defined based on the relationships themselves. So, for mm. instance, uh, let's, let's go back and take a, a classic example of movies. Okay, I want to predict that... It, the next Marvel movie, how mm-hmm. much money is it going to make? And then you want to look at, well, typically people look at history, how things change and so on. But you could also look at the actors and you could look at the different actors that are involved in a movie. Mm-hmm. And you could say, well, these lead actors have typically tend to get, uh, you know, a lot of box office collection and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. So what we are trying to do is we are looking at uh, the fact that one Marvel movie might have uh, five stars, uh, right. five uh, five big entertainment stars, yeah, uh, like big actors, whatever. Right. Uh, and then another movie, on the other hand, might be carried solo by a single, uh, you know, uh, Iron Man. Is, is Iron Man even Marvel or are they decent? Uh, that's Marvel. Okay, I got that right. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, Robert Downey himself carries uh, one movie uh, with him. Mm-hmm. But but let's say the Avengers or, or some other one is carried by five, six people. Right. Does that necessarily mean that it's better than one? We don't know that, right? Right. And what... To typical machine learning methods tend to do is kind of collapse them into one group. We, Mm -hmm. on the other hand, say, well, how about we let 
the data speak for itself. Maybe each of them combine some way and I look at the previous Avengers, look at who's directing, who's uh, uh, imparting. So from that perspective, I'm not doing too much feature engineering, but I'm figuring out how can I use this graph mm-hmm. of people and make that use that to make uh, a prediction that, that I cannot with, uh, with uh, a normal machine learning algorithm. Okay. The other problem is, um, here is the problem, okay? So let's say you, you uh, in, in classical machine learning, you, you make an assumption. Oh, mm-hmm. I'm going to look at the top five actors. Mm-hmm. But let's say suddenly Marvel decides to make this mega Avengers movie with 20 <laughs> actors. Right. Okay. So you got to go back to your model and say, oh, man, we went from five to 20. Right. And you Doesn't have to adjust your model. Apply in this exactly. World. You right. might want to, you cannot generalize that easily. Right. We, on the other hand, make no assumption on the number of individuals, right. number of objects. We can say as long as, you know, they are actors in a movie, we're going to use their information to make mm-hmm. predictions. So that's where the power of, of relational representations come in. And okay. they're kind of tied. Actually, you asked me two questions. One is on the implementation aspect, the right. one that, and I don't think they are too different. Okay. Because when you think about how these are ultimately implemented, they are in some sense implemented based on either a logical representation, the power of first order logic, as people know for a long time in, in computer science, mm-hmm. or from a relational representation as a database. Mm-hmm. So it's I, so which is why in US, this is called statistical relational learning, mm-hmm. because most of the work is done on top of relational databases. Okay. In Europe, this is called probabilistic logic learning because most of the uh, machinery underlying is a logical representation. And both of them do minimal feature construction. Okay. They kind of learn at the level of the databases. The cool thing is they are statistical and probabilistic because you can allow the data to be noisy. Mm. So that's what happens. So our data can be noisy. Mm-hmm. Our models are robust to noise. Our models are robust to changing uh, number of individuals, number of parameters, number of objects in the world. Um, mm. And and so we learn at the level of objects and relations, not at the level of specific uh, specific people. Okay. And I think that's why uh, uh, these models are powerful. Okay. And so how does it work? Uh, how does learning work, or how does uh, uh, kind of what's the you know the method that you apply to? So to do what this? we do, for instance, I'm going to talk about one specific method that we do, which is called. Uh, a relational functional gradient boosting. Okay. That is this famous gradient boosting technique inside machine learning. What mm-hmm. we are doing is we are elevating it to uh, the uh, relational setting. So it's called mm-hmm. lifted, uh, okay. relation, uh, lifted gradient boosting. And the idea is very simple. So let's say I'm interested, uh, let's just take a simple example. I'm interested in predicting if somebody has a heart attack. Okay. Mm-hmm. And we look at the database. Let's say I'm a positive example in that I have a heart attack. Uh, Sam, you're a negative example. You look much fitter than I am, so you don't have a heart attack. Um, and uh, what happens is my model uses my uh, attributes and it starts to learn. And then mm-hmm. it says, who is the father of this person diabetic? Turns out my father is. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then uh, is, the, is the cholesterol level of this uh, person pretty high? If so, um, then uh, the probability of a heart attack is, let's say, my model comes up with me having a probability of 0.7 as a mm-hmm. heart attack. The same model comes with you to have a probability of 0.13, okay? Mm-hmm. Now, my because I'm a positive example, it should say that I have a probability of 1 to have a heart attack, but I said 0.7, mm-hmm. which means 1 minus 0.7, 0.3 is the mistake that the model makes on me. Mm-hmm. Your probability should have been 0 because that's you don't have a heart attack according mm-hmm. to the data. Right. But my model said 0.13 as your probability. Mm-hmm. So your weight 
so to say is minus mm. 0.13 that is the mistake so every positive example will have a weight of greater than or equal to 0 mm-hmm. every negative example like you will have a weight of less than or equal to 0 so mm-hmm. what we do is we learn a small model regression model it could be a class which says if the father is diabe- father of this person is diabetic and if this person's cholesterol level uh, in the last 3 months is is greater than i don't know uh, if let's say the hdl cholesterol is is less than 30 mm-hmm. then the probability of heart attack is this you could go do other things uh, for instance that says uh, the relational power comes from the fact that your class could say something like if any of his close family members and this close family members could mean my dad uh, my dad's dad my dad's brother my mom's brothers and so mm-hmm. on and so forth and you will have completely different number of uncles and aunts as i do mm-hmm. Okay. So uh, you could say something like if a close family member has uh, a predisposition for heart attack then the probability of heart attack for me is so much. Mm-hmm. And you could say that because of the fact that uh, I'm not defining I, I can define close family member to be either an uncle or an aunt or a first cousin or uh, you know uh, my grandparents on either side and so on and so forth and we are not restricting the number. Mm-hmm. You just look into the data and you can learn it. So what the model does is it tries to find out these factors that matter put them together and and make a prediction and then it finds which mistake where it makes a mistake learn something else to fix that mistake so for people who don't have low hdl and whose father don't have a, a let's say diabetes mm-hmm. they could be that they smoke a lot and drink a lot mm-hmm. and for them there is a different issue so what the model does is oh okay i've got serum mostly covered there's only a small mistake on shriram but there is this other person who has a heart attack whom i have not covered so let me focus on that person mm-hmm. so it kind of may, fixes these mistakes repeatedly and learns one robust model in the end mm. and it scales up pretty well uh, we have uh, the code is available online so people can look at uh, that from my web page as well okay uh, a couple things uh, so one you you talked about heart attack smoking cholesterol levels these are all things that i would associate as being features in a traditional model but yet you said that you don't really get into features as much with this uh how do you how do you reconcile that so i have to make it clearer in the sense that these are all features so everything is a feature okay. what i'm saying is we don't really do a lot of feature engineering right. we don't we don't say oh uh, for instance uh beautiful question right so let's say you go to the hospital again you're looking much better than i am you go to the hospital maybe once a year to mm-hmm. do your annual checkup mm-hmm. i go to the hospital three or four times a year okay mm-hmm. now think about how a, 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 a classical machine learning algorithm will do you will have one measurement of cholesterol mm-hmm. i will have four measurements of cholesterol mm-hmm. i have i might have my a1c's recorded every 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 actually four is good for a year <laughs> so mm-hmm. four a1c's which is every three months i'm going to record my uh, blood sugar level mm-hmm. um, and so i have multiple measurements and you have only uh, one measurement mm-hmm. how do we do this well classical method say min max uh, average so it takes an average of my mm-hmm. cholesterol level it takes a minimum maximum and puts them as features mm-hmm. this is what we call as feature engineering right okay we don't do that we say if the cholesterol level in the last one year has ever been greater than this and that can be written by logic so a logic statement says there exists a cholesterol level and this is called quantification in logic mm-hmm. and so they kind of so we don't even do that uh, min max etc they can be done if needed we can do it mm-hmm. but doing that is a subset of what we can do we can just let the data as it is which says that any time in the last 5 years shriram's cholesterol level has been this 
anytime in the, uh, after the age of 55, this person's uh, A1C has been this. And so we can tease that out. So what I mean by feature engineering is we don't construct specific features for specific problems. You just let the data be in its natural form. That still sounds like feature. It sounds like you, the the if statement is like a one-hot encoding on whether their cholesterol has been high. So the cholesterol is a classic example. Okay, okay. Cholesterol might not be the best example to illustrate the difference. Okay. Take the smoking properties of a friend. Okay. Right. If your close friend smokes, yeah. the probability of you having a heart attack is 0.3 or 0.4. Hmm. How do you define that in mm-hmm. in 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 a propositional uh, or in a normal uh, setting? Okay, I want to say if a close so features smokes, fall down because they're not related to the individual entity, exactly. whereas you've got this broad universe that's captured by all these relationships, and, and it's and all features, but they're not like features of me. It's features it's, of this network. It's features of this network, okay. and the size of the network varies between people. Right. So in the Got end, it. everything is a feature. You're right. Right. But what is the feature of? My point is that we don't do specific feature engineering continuously. Mm-hmm. We let the data in its natural form, mm-hmm. which is I could talk about objects and relations and features of those objects and features of those relations. Right. right? Okay. I, I just have to say, well, so again, you might have five close friends. I might have three close friends. Mm-hmm. How do you encode this? Right. 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 And, right. And right. Whereas our models can just handle them because it just says, oh, is there one friend? Is there two friends? You can just look at okay. it and you can learn from it. It's easy to do that. Um, you, you, I thought you were going someplace that you didn't end up going. Um, it, it strikes me that uh, you gave the example of the multiple... Um, uh, you go into the hospital multiple times a year and get your four A1C readings. I go in once and get my one. Uh, and then you you write your rule that basically looks to see if I have been, you know, have had a higher A1C reading over the past 10 years. Yeah. Um, it strikes me that you've, you've kind of lost a lot of information. Maybe there's information in the fact that you actually went four times and I only went once. That's a great point. Um, it's, it's not necessarily that we lose that information. Okay. If you want to take that, you can record that too. Mm-hmm. Okay. So actually, the, so two things that I want to clarify. First, I don't write the rules. Uh-huh. Because of this boosting algorithm, the rules are automatically learned from data. So we use only data and we use some domain knowledge. Actually, we I work on what is called as knowledge-based machine learning. Okay. Now we call it as human-in-the-loop machine learning. So okay. the, there is a human expert. Uh, 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 we work with cardiologists. We work with radiologists. We work okay. with uh, uh, neuroradiologists and uh, and so on and so forth. We have a lot of collaborations in in uh, in, in medical uh, with medical groups. Okay. And so, so did so they that, write that's the rules slightly, or are the rules learned by algorithms? The rules are, rules are learned by algorithms. Okay. What they give us is a little bit more knowledge. Okay. They, they can say things like, oh, this, this guy is much more difficult to predict than this person. Mm-hmm. And then we tell the data, oh, focus on this person. Mm-hmm. Or uh, a person could come and say, uh, I'll come to that about the experts in a little okay. bit after I answer this question. Okay. So we don't provide the rules. The rules are learned automatically from the data. Okay. And the rules themselves are capable of learning that. The rules themselves are capable of saying, uh, oh, the number of visits, if the number of visits matter, then it can say, actually, if the number of visits is greater than four, mm-hmm. and in that number, if there is uh, A1C reading greater than this much. So, so when you say you don't learn the rules, does that mean you don't learn? No, we don't write the rules. Right, right. Sorry. <laughs> we, we learn the rules. When you, when you say you learn the rules, are you learning the the parameters of the rules no, or are you learn learning the rules, the rules themselves. themselves? We learn the rules themselves okay. along with the parameters. Okay. Which is why, uh, so 
So if you think of like a, a complex neural network or a deep network where mm-hmm. I'm, they're writing these features out, yeah. the features themselves can be learned by us. Right. So we learn these rules, which are basically if-then-else, think of them as if-then-else statements. Yeah. And then we parameterize them with probabilities or, or real numbers, okay. depending on whatever interpretation you take. Mm-hmm. Um, but we learn the rules from data. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so we learn it from data. Okay. Now going back to the other point that, uh, uh, that I wanted to make about experts. Mm-hmm. Experts can provide a lot of things. Experts can tell us things like, uh, in, in some cases, false positives are more important than false negatives. Okay. Okay. So, for instance, uh, uh, in in uh, in recommendation systems, mm-hmm. I'm recommending a job to you, right? Or uh, I get these LinkedIn recommendations, which keep telling me <laughs> there is a postdoc position open, right? Okay. And I'm like, come on, man! I did my time. That was seven years back. I don't right. want to do this again. Right. Right. So that is a false positive. It's a right. false positive. There, from a recommendation system perspective, that needs to be eliminated. Mm-hmm. If you tell me four jobs, only four jobs. Mm-hmm. And those are all relevant to what I'm looking at. I'm going to trust your system. Mm-hmm. So out of the f- potentially 4,000 jobs, you mm-hmm. may list only four jobs. But those are important to me. So I'll look at it. Mm-hmm. But if you give me 20 jobs, out of which only four are relevant, mm-hmm. the rest are all false positives, then I'm going to lose uh, trust in your system. Mm-hmm. Now think exactly the opposite side of, of an epidemic. You're mm-hmm. interested in predicting Ebola, for instance. Mm-hmm. right? It's, it's okay to quarantine four more people. Mm-hmm. What is the worst thing they're going to do? They're going to sue, sue the city. Mm-hmm. Million dollars each. At most, $10 million is what we're going to lose. Mm-hmm. But think about releasing four people with Ebola into the general right. community. Right. Then it becomes an epidemic and costs right. us billions of dollars just to talk in terms of numbers. Right. So what I'm trying to illustrate here is, in one case of recommendation system, false positives are more important than false negatives. Mm-hmm. In another case, false negatives are much more dangerous than false positives. Mm-hmm. An expert could come and tell us, ooh, no, 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 this is the case where this is more important than the other one. Okay. And, and what we do is we think of it as a knob and turn this knob on the classifier and say, oh, you know what, that's what it is. And in another example, a, a, sister, a domain expert could say, Sriram, uh, for people, what, what I have observed in my experience is that for people with high cholesterol, uh, if they have high BMI, then the risk of a heart attack is higher than people with lower cholesterol. Mm-hmm. So even people with high BMI have two different effects. They are not exactly telling me how these things influence, except right. they give a qualitative understanding between, between two things and, and a target of heart attack. Mm-hmm. So that's called uh, monotonicity, synergies. They call qualitative relationships. Mm-hmm. We can take that. You can take preferences. And how do, you, how do you encode that kind of thing? I'll, I'll come to that okay. uh, in, in a second. <laughs> I'll, I'll just illustrate this one thing and I'll come to that. So the third thing, for instance, is uh, I was in a college town, Bloomington, Indiana. Let's assume that you're trying to build a robot and the robot is sitting on top of a building, uh, you know, having a donut in one hand and observing how people stop at stop signs. <laughs> how st- people stop at stop signs. Um, I'm in a university town, which means only mm-hmm. 50% of the people stop at stop signs. Right? <laughs> and... and then you, you, the, the machine could ask the human, hey, I'm looking at this data, but like only 50% seem to be stopping. What do you think I should do? Then the expert could say, well, I prefer that you stop at stop signs if it is safe to stop. Maybe mm-hmm. there is an extreme case where, you know, you mm-hmm. don't want to stop in a stop sign because it's dangerous actually to stop. Mm-hmm. Right? You might put you in danger or somebody in danger. I don't know. I can imagine such situations with, mm-hmm. with autonomous cars, for instance. Um, and I, you, you say something soft that says, I prefer that you stop in mm-hmm. stop signs. And then it says, okay, great. Uh, then w- what, what our algorithm does is it takes these statements as constraints. Mm-hmm. 
And then it, it combines that with the data that I have. Okay. Mm-hmm. So there could be regions in the data where there is a lot of mistakes, like stop signs. Right. Then it says, ooh, the data has a lot of mistakes, but the expert has told me that this is what he or she prefers. Mm-hmm. So what I'm going to do is take what he or she tells me, combine it with my data, and wherever the data conflicts the, the expert or the expert conflicts the data, I'm going to weigh that lower. Wherever they agree, I'm going to weigh that higher hmm. and kind of incorporate that into my model. So what I do is I get these human inputs as constraints to the uh, learning uh, algorithm. Hmm. And, and we, we have shown across several publications that such constraints uh, improve performance. Mm-hmm. And very recently, what we have been trying to do is also um, do a little bit more, which is let the algorithm ask questions. Okay. Instead of the expert telling... So when we started this research, the expert has to say everything that he or she knows about the problem. Mm-hmm. And then we take them as constraints and learn. But now we have gone the other way and we have said, we'll start looking at the data in the regions where we have extreme uncertainty about things uh, that we are trying to learn. We will solicit information from the expert. So we call okay. it advice, actively advice, uh, seeking advice. Okay. So we, so the key is for the machine to know what it knows mm-hmm. and solicit information about what it does not know. Mm-hmm. And the expert could say something. It takes that back into the model, uh, adjust it. Again, because it's a it's an iterative learning uh, method that we have, it can go back and try and fix its mistakes. So let's put this on the stack after the uh, answer to the encoding question. Okay. Um, but it strikes me there that there's a there's a huge gap between what the algorithm is likely to surface. You know, some factor uh, is, you know, there's a high degree of ambiguity in some factor and something that you can present to a doctor that, you know, makes that intelligible and kind of elicits useful advice to feedback into the algorithm, which goes back to the encoding question. Like, how does That's all that part work? That's a beautiful question. That is a fantastic question. And that is another reason why these logical models are, are more useful. Okay. Here is the problem. If I, if I now use a, a very complex learning system underneath, mm-hmm. then it's going to say feature 17635421. Right. Seems very weird for me. And I go to the doctor. The doctor is not going to know anything. Right. Right. I, on the other hand, mine is a logical class. It's an if then else statement. So it could say mm. for people who have slightly lower uh, HDL level, mm-hmm. but on the other hand, their triglyceride level seems to be good. Mm-hmm. There seems to be a lot of distribution over these heart attacks and diabetes. What, what do I do? Mm. So what happens is because of the fact that we are learning these, these knowledge at the level of the data themselves, the, the mm-hmm. relational schema themselves, it's easier to present to the doctor because mm-hmm. they know what the schema looks like. Okay. It's not just the doctors. We work, again, with financial experts. So, again, our, our legal experts. So, we mm-hmm. have these documents and we can say, well, you can't say something like if the parse tree comes <coughs> up with this noun phrase. No. Right. But we can extract the says that says this part of the sentence that seems to be always conflicted with this part of the sentence. Why is that? And we can ask that question. Mm-hmm. And, and that is only because of the fact that we are learning a much more representative model, a much more interpretable model okay. than, than a, a typical complex model learners. So that's because of the fact that you're learning if object, objects type, objects value, objects relations are mm-hmm. like this, then something, right? Okay. So then you can present uh, this to the user. So that's another power uh, mm-hmm. that, that comes from uh, these uh, relational models that you don't get uh, okay. with, with standard models. Yeah. So can you, can you talk a little bit about how you benchmark this relative to other approaches and what kind of results you've seen? 
So uh, that's something that we do all the time extensively. What we try and do is we take these models and try to, when, so for instance, if I have to run a deep belief network or something, mm-hmm. we try to create as we spend a lot of time engineering as much as possible mm-hmm. and, and, and try to engineer this a lot and then create many, many, many features. And you try to use a, a standard machine learning algorithm as your, as your baseline. Mm-hmm. Now, what happens is for the current data set, it might learn a good performance, right? right. On your training uh, set, it could actually give pretty good performance because most of these machine learning algorithms can learn well if you engineer uh, your features very well. And, mm-hmm. and that's doable. We do that. Right. The, the problem, real problem apply, comes when, when it comes to generalization. So most of the benchmarking that we do is on generalization. Mm-hmm. So for instance, you learn about uh, whether a student works with a professor from one university, mm-hmm. right? You test on that university, most of these algorithm works great. Mm-hmm. Now what you do is you'd go to a different university and deploy this model. Right. And right. they kind of break down because you have to create new features, new uh, things. Whereas these relational learning algorithms, because of the fact that they learn not at the level of the individual professors, but at the level of these groups of people, mm. the sets of people, it, it's much more easy to adapt and transfer. Okay. So when we do this benchmarking, we try to uh, figure out, let's say, other networks, which is why a classic example is, let's say you've used all of Sriram's family network data. Mm-hmm. What I'll do is when I'm testing it, I go to Sam's data and I see the Sam's uh, data work on my model. Mm-hmm. And, and then you do that with these uh, classical methods. Some of the times you don't get them. Mm-hmm. Sometimes if you know what you're going to test on, you can certainly engineer uh, and, and try and do that. But most of the times uh, uh, these, these relational models work beautifully on mm-hmm. those problems as well. Yeah, I hear people talk all the time about like overfitting on ImageNet and yeah. things like that in the, in the industry, in the field. Do you feel that this notion of kind of focusing on generalization as opposed to performance is like underappreciated or under pursued definitely, in this space? Definitely, definitely. But uh, the, the, the good thing is that there's been a new uh, a conscience on, on looking at generalization as an important mm-hmm. aspect. But initially, there's been a lot of work on, 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 on the science of uh, ex, uh, experimental methodology of machine learning. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's been a lot of work on empirical machine learning. I think that's, mm-hmm. that's an extremely important research direction. Right. People kind of lost um, a, li- a little bit of that oversight when, 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 we, when we went and uh, developed aggressively more and more and more uh, newer models. Mm-hmm. But I think now people have started realizing that because of this abundance of data sources, and we have these multiple data sources that we have to somehow integrate and work with, mm-hmm. suddenly generalization again has become an uh, mm-hmm. important issue. So I, from my limited, whatever, 15, 16 year experience, I have seen that there is a lot of uh, interest now in making sure that we build models that generalize across populations, okay. across data sets, across uh, uh, diverse uh, data sources. Mm. And I think that's that's certainly an important uh, research direction. Hmm. And uh, which is one of the reasons we want to make sure that any model that you develop is not tied to that particular thing. Right. And right. Which is why when I see many of these people talk about AI, uh, we, we're all a little bit worried because it is such <laughs> a s- specific domain-specific solution that you are always worried when it's going to break. And it could break right. very easily right. uh, if you don't think about generalization. Hmm. Uh, are there standard and well-accepted ways of measuring generalization? Or do you, do, do you feel like everyone kind of figures it out, you know, presents their own results in their own way in papers? Um, there's a there's a lot of work on under, and generalization errors and understanding generalization errors. Mm-hmm. Um, 
cross-validation uh, and and uh, the bi- whole bias variance theory has tried to figure out how how the bias on, on a particular data set is going to uh, affect the variance across a multiple uh, data sets. Mm-hmm. So there's a, definitely a lot of understanding in statistical machine learning on, on this notion of generalization error. Mm-hmm. And people have uh, definitely looked at it. But I think when it comes to the practical implementation, people mm-hmm. tend to ignore it. Mm-hmm. They, they tend to uh, kind of evaluate them in a very narrow uh, field. I've, I've even had students uh, both in my class and in my research group sometimes uh, build these so-called tuning sets where you fix your parameters using this uh, tuning set uh, right. for your learning algorithm from test sets. You should never do that. Okay. That's like cheating. <laughs> That's like having a practice question uh, from the final midterm or the final exam that you have. Yeah. You're going to have a practice question on that. So that's cheating. But students do that all the time. Okay. So we, we, uh, we tend to try and teach them that's not the right way to do it. And we try to show them a proper way to do it. So um, there's, a, there's definitely a lot of work on uh, generalization and understanding generalization. Mm-hmm. But remember, it's, it's within a certain domain. Can we do it across domains? Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe not. Like, can you take something like learning how to drive a car and figure out how to drive a plane or fly a plane? Right. Um, no, but, but maybe driving a car in US was India I can't imagine doing that easily, but you could do that. You could right. you could you could try and understand how how does it generalize across multiple countries, uh, and trying to understand how the rules of the of the domains change. Right. At some point, it gets into just artificial general intelligence, right? Exactly. It's like if you can exactly. generalize across every domain, that's what that's the goal. Yeah. Well, or yeah. That's a goal. That's right. a goal, but I right. don't know. I mean, I'm not saying that you need something that is very general. I'm I'm saying right. that you need something that is generalizable enough inside the same problem domain at right. least. Yeah, I right? think we understand so if that. I, if, I, if I build a model, as I said, for driving in US, that should be able to drive in, in Europe, if mm-hmm. not in India, let's say. Mm-hmm. That, that level of chaos may be difficult, but maybe at least in Europe, maybe in London, it should be able to drive a car if I teach it how to drive a car in mm-hmm. LA. And, and that amount of generalization should be there at the very least. Right. It would be cool to drive a, a car in India. That would be awesome to achieve it. But I'm not really looking for this one uh, system that drives and flies at the same time. Right. Uh, in fact, I'm worried that that might lose some specific knowledge <laughs> that, that a driving agent will have that the flying agent will not. So, yeah. Yeah. So, so that's the balance. How much uh, general knowledge do you want and how much specific, uh, 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 specific uh, I guess, um, What's the right word here? Specific skill set you want for mm-hmm. solving that problem. I think that's the difference that uh, that we have to find. And I, the sweet spot depends on the problem domain. Mm-hmm. In some problems, it's... So think about it. Like, you you have a problem and you go to a doctor and this doctor is a neurologist, okay? Mm-hmm. And now you want to talk a little bit about diabetes. Mm-hmm. This person is going to tell you something, but they're going to say, this is what I know and right. you better <laughs> talk to somebody who knows this better. Right. Right. And you go there, right? Or, or like a cancer, right? You want to go to an oncologist, right? And so, so, but before that, you have a family friend who's who's a radiologist. The radiologist mm-hmm. is going to give you a lot of information, right? But then you say, I, but I'll still refer you to this oncologist for your treatment plans. Yeah. And and that's what you want, even with systems. You don't really want systems that says, oh, I can solve this and this and that right. and this. Right. And so, not too generalizable, right? right. But uh, so, artificial general intelligence is great, mm-hmm. but we also have to accept that. Uh, that comes at a cost. It's contextual. Yes, in a sense. exactly. Um, you mentioned you had code up on your site. Um, yeah. Tell me a little bit about the code. Is it is it kind of code applied to the healthcare 
Uh, so that's a great or is question. It ge- no. you know, general algorithm or it's a general algorithm. It's a okay. boosting algorithm that anybody can uh, download. It's a gradient boosting, but okay. operates on relational databases. Okay. Uh, we have an extensive tutorial on how to convert your data to our format, how to run the code. We can okay. learn multiple types of models, relational probabilistic models. We can learn multiple. We can take the human inputs on this. We actually have a wrapper that can do natural language extractions. Uh, so you have text data, but you want to let's say figure out uh, who uh, who is married to whom based on paragraphs reading okay. some some CNN articles or something okay. um, and you can you can post that problem we have shown how to do it hmm. so this is an extensive uh, uh, tutorial on how to use this okay. um, it's available off of my web page okay uh, it's if you go to my lab web page through my web page uh, in in the software uh, it's there and, okay. and people can download it and use it it's a general purpose software, not okay. a, not only applied to health problems. Okay. When, when it comes to health problems, there is always a, a catch. We have to be very careful on what we release and mm-hmm. what we don't and so on and so right. forth. So, yeah. Okay. Uh, and then um, we've been talking about relational databases, but there's uh, a whole um, set of, a whole type of database called... Uh, Graph databases. Yes. Uh, does your method apply to graph databases as Fantastic well? Fantastic question. Yes. The answer is yes because graph is a relation for us. Right. Right. Nodes and edges are relations. Uh, mm-hmm. So relation is this common word that we use. Yeah. So graphs are just uh, relations. And actually, um, because one of the most important step in inside our optimization function is to count. Mm-hmm. You have to count the number of instances, so count the number of papers that somebody wrote, count the number of friends that somebody has in Facebook, mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. And that counting is actually a complex problem. Mm-hmm. So we, we actually use graph databases to accelerate our counts. Oh, okay. Uh, so we do use a, sometimes a temporal, repre- uh, sorry, uh, sometimes a, a intermediate representation of a graph database okay. to accelerate our learning. So for us, graph databases and databases, graphs, uh, they're all structured problems that we right. can handle okay. uh, using the formalism of logic. Absolutely. So okay. the answer is yes. Uh, we, and what we are trying to do is actually do exactly that. Uh, build a version that is more optimized for graph databases mm-hmm. because graph databases are much uh, simpler sometimes than the full logic uh, like PsyCorp knowledge base or, or never-ending language learner NEL knowledge base. Those mm-hmm. are logical knowledge bases and those are huge. Mm-hmm. Whereas a graph what database... Are, what are they calling it? PsyCorp. PsyCorp? Yeah, PsyCorp okay. is this uh, company that's been running a learning, that's been building a knowledge base for over 35, 40 years. Okay. Uh, and so those are like giant knowledge bases. Okay. Whereas graph databases are much easier uh, to manage mm-hmm. and, and work with. Mm-hmm. So they may be even faster for us to learn with. So yeah, okay. absolutely. Uh, okay. Learning with graph database is something that we do all the time. Okay. And so you're out uh, doing the tutorial, kind of evangelizing this approach. What's the end goal for you? Is it, are you trying to get grad students and postdocs? Are you trying to get industry to adopt this? Uh, what's what's the, so the motivation want, and vision? I think we want people to be aware of this big goal of statistical relational AI. Mm-hmm. We want people to know that uh, deep learning is not everything. And we want mm-hmm. people to know that there are other learning uh, areas that focus on some r- richer, probably more important questions. Mm-hmm. Um, 
turns out that the four of us who are giving uh, the tutorial actually have large groups ourselves. So okay. it's not like we are trying to recruit people here. Okay. <laughs> but we are going one conference at a time to kind of show that, that this field is now uh, actually much more matured than what it was 10 years back. Okay. And we are trying to uh, tell people that, you know, there is a lot of opportunities inside our field. So combining deep models with logical models, uh, combining, uh, 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 let's say, uh, matrix factorization with relational data. So there's, mm -hmm. there's a lot of opportunities for this. And that's what we are highlighting in the tutorial tomorrow, is inviting more people to work on similar problems like we do. And mm -hmm. that's the ultimate goal for us, is kind of show people that this is an important research area and problem, and that all of us together can contribute. Mm -hmm. uh, to. So we want more people to work on, on these problems. I okay. think that's our end goal. Great, great. Are there specific um, uh, examples of like case studies or like, you know, health centers or products that use this or, the, you know, yeah. they... that's a That's a very good question. So um, I think one of the uh, uh, case uh, is, is this deep dive by uh, Professor Chris Ray from Stanford. Okay. That's now been bought out by Apple. Okay. Uh, so this is this uh, probabilistic databases, which, which kind of is uh, statistical relational AI mm -hmm. uh, in some sense. Um, that that automatically extracted information, knowledge extraction from videos and images and okay. text. And so that's a classic uh, uh, case. We have been working with hospitals on trying to see how we can put the data back into their learning system mm -hmm. for making predictions on the number of hospital readmissions, mm -hmm. uh, the number of procedures that need to be done on some persons. Right. We recently have got some uh, very good success on using such models on predicting postpartum depression by looking at the network of, of women, uh, ne sorry, network of people that the women uh, are, are, are uh, in touch with. Hmm. And so uh, we are trying to talk to people to see how this can uh, go out to the market. Um, we work with a particular bank um, on, on looking at their legal documents and figuring out if, um, if, if a new document comes in, does this match the standards mm. of, of, the, of the company, of the bank? Mm -hmm. and, and we can do that automatically with like 98%, 99% accuracy. Oh, wow. And the ones that we fail, we can flag it and show it to the, uh, to the human expert who, okay. who currently, uh, so, uh, uh, currently looks at it. So yes, uh, there's, there's a lot of these case studies out there. Uh, that, but but again, we we are trying to do the deployment at this point. So maybe in hopefully, if I talk to you in two years, I'll be able to uh -huh. say. Uh, well, I probably will not be able to say company A uses it, but I right. can say there right. is a company That's that uses hard. it. <laughs> Same thing with recommendation systems. The job right. recommendation system is actually uh, a real project that we have done with a real company, and okay. and they are looking to use our product in their collaborative filtering system. Okay. So yeah, uh, so there's a lot of success stories on this. Actually, which is what we're going to highlight tomorrow. You should drop by. Okay, Yeah. awesome. Well, okay. Shuram, thanks so much for uh, for joining me. I really appreciate uh, having an opportunity to learn about statistical relational AI. Thank you. Uh, any final words or places that you'd like to point folks to or anything else? Oh, thanks. Um, there is a book on statistical relational AI, of course, that I'm a co-author of. Actually, the four of us who wrote the book are the four who are giving tutorials tomorrow. Okay, wow. And, and there's a series of workshops that happen every year uh, that the four of us, again, founded 10 years, eight, nine years back. I don't know. Okay. Eight, nine years back. I'm getting old. Um, and uh, But now people are running it. It's kind of self-sustaining in its own. So I invite people to look at these problems of statistical relational AI and uh, contact any of us. Uh, if you need any directions or anything of that sort, I'm very, very happy to help. Awesome. Thanks so much. For Thank you. Help. Thanks. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. For more information on Sriram 
or any of the topics covered in this episode, head on over to twimlai.com slash talk slash 113. Definitely remember to submit your thoughts on AI in your life at twimlai.com slash myai. And of course, thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.